light your fire, you're more Presbyterian than I am. Because me as a Presbyterian, I'm saying amen. Well, good morning. I'm Zach Carden. I'm director of family ministries here at the Church of the Apostles. I do have a, one announcement, one housekeeping issue before we go on. Next week, next week is the weekend when many of you rejoice because we get more daylight. But I mourn because I lose an hour of sleep. So be aware, if Siri does not change your clock for you, that you need to set your clock ahead one hour so that I'm not here alone next week. Yes, I'll be preaching again next week as it would happen. Um, and I really, I will preach to no one. I will be happy to do that. <laughs> but I would encourage you to join us next week as that's the second part of what we're going to talk about today. And today we're going to talk about Romans 7. And that's page 1121, 1121 in your pew Bible. I will not read the passage this morning. We will be covering the passage within the sermon. So let me pray for us, and we'll begin. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, forgive us. Forgive me. For often I speak, and I do, and I live, and I strive without you. I move ahead without you. Lord, let that not be the life of your people. <clears throat> fill this room this morning, fill our hearts this morning. Convict, rebuke, correct, encourage, teach. Because that's your role. That's what you do. I am merely here to read the passage. I'm merely here to say what a human thinks that says. But you are the spirit and you change lives and you change hearts and you bring dead men to life. And we are calling you here this morning for that purpose. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when I was in seminary, I had an after-school job, or after my classes job, in a school locally. And basically, I, it was childcare, and we would do crafts with the kids. I played a whole lot of kickball. Uh, even had a kickball injury that uh, nags me every now and then, playing with elementary school students. Uh, there was one craft that we had one day that I will always remember. We were to put together, or the kids were to put together these bears, and they had these patterns on the tables in front of them. And they were to take them, and they were to trace the pattern of the bear. There was one arm, one leg, and a body. They were to trace it and then put it together with brads, cut it out put it together with brads. And I was walking around, and one of the little girls called for my attention, Mr. Zach, Mr. Zach, come over here, please, Mr. Zach, I need your help. Okay. She said, there's something wrong with my bear. I'm like, really? What is that? Let me see it. Where is your bear? So she, she held it up, and it was the cardboard pattern. A one-armed, one-legged bear. And I proceeded to, to, to tell her, honey, that's not how you do this. Okay? You, you're going to have to take that pattern, and you're going to have to trace it, and then you cut it out and put it together. 
she argued with me. That's not the way I want to do it. I already colored the pattern. This is my bear. Fix it. I'm like, honey, I can't fix your bear unless you do it the right way. I want to do it my way. And I sat there and I said, God, forgive me because this is me. This is me. I would rather settle for one arm, one legged bears, and do it my way than do it the way of the Spirit. To trust the Lord, to let Him have His work in me, to let Him help me. She refused my help. And sometimes, oftentimes, we refuse the Lord's help. Well, this morning, I believe as we look at Romans 7, we see a picture of what it's like to do it our way. Instead of the way of the Spirit. And I believe that Romans answers the question, does the commandment done by us in our own effort change us? Now, disclaimer, the interpretive difficulty of of Romans 7 is about a 9 out of 10. And there are several different ways of looking at this passage. Before Augustine, people thought Romans 7 was about those before Christ. After Augustine and the Reformers, they took the, review, they took the view that, that this is the Christian's struggle. Now, there are many Bible-believing evangelical preachers that we would love and trust who would argue for either side. The reason for this is that the language of Paul that he uses here in this passage sounds sometimes like a life before Christ and sometimes like a life in Christ. So it's difficult to unravel. But as I've wrestled over this passage, I've come to my own conclusions So here we go. I believe that what we're seeing in verses 1 through 6 is an overview, a big picture. It ties back to everything that has come before. But it gives us a new illustration of it. Then I believe that what we see in verses 7 through 13 describes the struggle before Christ. With a change of tense from the past to the present in verses 14 through 25... I believe we're seeing the struggle of a believer. So the outline would look like this. We are called to live in the new way of the Spirit. And I get that from verse 6. Why? Because the way of the written code was contributive to our spiritual death. That's verses 7 through 13. And the way of the written code is subversive to our life in the Spirit. That's verses 14 through 25. Chapter 7, then, I believe, is Paul's apologetic for the new way of the Spirit by way of looking at the old way of the written code. Why do I say that? Look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. I believe that Paul's big point here, his big idea And that everything in this chapter is how the old way of the written code plays out. And to flesh out this big picture, Paul wraps everything he said up to this point in an illustration. And he takes that illustration from marriage. He writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. 
For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from, the, from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Death and dying are, are mentioned five times in that passage, but they don't all correspond to the same thing, and that's part of the confusion. Now, if you're confused by the illustration, you're not alone. It actually makes more sense when you cut out the illustration. Listen again to the, the passage without the illustration part. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those of you who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. My brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, the marriage illustration is partly there to show that physical death releases us from the law. Spiritual death releases us from the law. And I believe his point is this. It's not committing adultery on the law to follow Christ. It's not cheating on the law to follow Christ because you died in him and were released from your first marriage to the law. It's a little weird because in the illustration, the husband dies and then he talks about you dying, but that's because you died with Christ. As he says earlier, you were buried with Christ through baptism. The point here is your obligation to live up to the whole law in order to be righteous in God's sight is over. You are no longer under that system. Now, but wait a minute, you might say, isn't the law a good thing? Why would I want to commit adultery against the law or cheat on the law? Well, that's a good question. In fact, that is the question that Paul anticipates from his readers in verse 7. Take a look. He says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Let me paraphrase. Is the law such a bad thing that I would have to commit adultery on it? Can't I be faithful to it? Two answers. No, the law is not intrinsically bad. It is the mirror of God's perfection. But also, no, you cannot be faithful to it. And Paul sketches that out for us in verses 7 through 13 and shows us the reason why we are called to live by the new way of the Spirit. Because first, the way of the written code was contributive to our spiritual death. In other words, the way of the written code has accomplished its purpose. It's done what it's set about to do. It contributes to bringing us to an awareness of our spiritual death. Before we do that, we have to talk about the struggle of the human heart before we believe, because there is a struggle of the human heart before we believe. Why? Because Adam's original programming, for lack of a better word, was the commandment etched on his heart. It's what the reformers call a seed of religion. It's a desire to please. That's why there's so many religions in this world. That's why there is an effort within us to try to maintain something. But there's also a sin nature within us after the fall. 
So that's why we, on one hand, want to worship something, but because of our sin nature, that something tends to be things in this world or, most importantly, us. We become self-centered. We can no longer be God-centered. So no, the law is not originally a bad thing at all, but because of Adam's sin, we're unable to fulfill our original design. Instead, we now have the sin nature and the seed of religion that are battling within us before we come to Christ. So the inner war of the unsafe person is a war between a sense of religion that I must do right to be accepted. If you ask anyone why God should allow them into to heaven and they don't know the Lord, they typically answer, because I've been a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I've done nice things. I'm not Saddam Hussein. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Osama bin Laden. I'm a pretty decent guy. But the sin nature is there also, pleasing self. And the need to worship, as we've said, is often fulfilled by worshiping ourselves. And I think that's why Paul, what Paul is describing in verses 7 to 13. He's describing this war and this downward spiral that ultimately leads to his acknowledgement of spiritual death. Verse 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Let's stop there for a, for a moment. All the way back in Romans 1, Paul has told us that the human heart knows God and yet suppresses the truth. So when he says here, I would not have known what it is to covet or desire, in this context, I believe he means the law helped me not to be self-deceived. Before I came to Christ, once I understood the law, once I comprehended God's holy requirement, it helped me not be self-deceived. Because when I know God's righteous requirement, and it's etched on my heart, but no, I can't possibly attain it, my first fleshly reaction is to lower the bar, or lower the requirement, or ignore it altogether. It's like when you know you have a taillight out, a brake light out, and you say, eh, I'll get to that. Everybody drives around with one taillight, with one brake light. And then the police officer pulls you over, and he asks you, did you know that your taillight was out? And you say, my taillight was out? <laughs> Notice you didn't answer the question. You're just asking a question back to him. And he knows and he suspects that you might be lying about it, but he can't prove it. So he issues you not a ticket, but a warning. So that if you're pulled over later, you are without excuse. You can't use the, oh, my taillight's out? I didn't know that anymore. And the written code is there to do something similar. The written code is there not to leave us any wiggle room. We can't lower the standard. God's made it very clear. It's plain and it's simple. But once we get our religion straight, here comes the sin nature exploiting the opportunity. Continuing in verse 8. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead. You know what? I'm going to see how long I can drive around without getting caught. <sighs> I didn't replace my brake light. Who does he think he is? It's my car. 
No one's going to run into the back of me. It's all good. This is the reason why people, and I mean you and me when I say people, didn't want the donut until we couldn't have the donut, right? That's this law working within us. It's law and sin nature working within us. The easiest way to get someone to do something is to tell them they aren't allowed to do it. The easiest way to get them not to do something is to tell them that they are required to do it. Tell me that's not human experience. It was my experience in summer reading. There were a lot of good books that I wanted to read, but when they were told me I had to read them, I said, nope, there's any, nothing else I want to read, but I don't want to read these books. I'll read anything else. Because that's that seed of rebellion in me. Continuing in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And this is where people get tangled up. They say, wait a minute, this can't be an unbeliever because he says he's alive apart from the law. Or they say, how can someone who is spiritually dead die? So what gives? Well, it's like Bruce Willis's character in The Sixth Sense. And if you haven't seen that movie, I'm going to spoil it for you because I haven't seen that movie because someone spoiled it for me. Bruce Willis's character is supposed to be a therapist helping a little boy who sees dead people come to grips with what he's seen. This very disturbed child then enters into a counseling arrangement with Bruce Willis. And plot twist, shocker, spoiler alert, Bruce Willis actually ends up being dead. As strange as that sounds in fiction, I believe that's what Paul's actually describing here in these verses. We aren't alive apart from the law. We think we're alive apart from the law. We don't die as a result of embracing sin. Our sin nature exploits the law and reveals to us that we never were alive. But we were actually truly and spiritually dead. It's like when I said to the little girl, okay, do it yourself. I can't. There you go. You need help. James says it this way. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. In other words, don't fancy yourself a law keeper because you're really a lawbreaker because you broke one point of it. Actually, you broke a ton, but we're not going to go there. You broke it. You're guilty. You don't get a chance to make that up. That's the way of the written code. In other words, you cannot be faithful to the law in the way that God requires. If you think you can, you're deceiving yourself. So Paul then goes on to say in verses 12 through 13, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, I failed. Yes, you have. I failed again. Yes, you have. I failed again. Yes, you have. You are a sinner. Nothing's going to change about that unless you turn to Christ. One of the purposes of the law is to bring us to utter futility, trying to find obedience through the flesh. Born in Adam, born in sin, we will be unfaithful to the law. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He moves from the past tense to the present tense in verses 14 through 25. 
And in doing so, I believe he is reflecting on the present struggle against sin within the life of a believer. And here I believe the emphasis is that we are called to live in the new way of the Spirit because the way of the written code is subversive to life by the Spirit. Remember what Paul says in verse 4. He says, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Here's the key part. In order that we may bear fruit for God. We will bear fruit for God. The offspring or fruit of our union with Adam or the law was death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The offspring or the fruit of our union with Christ is gospel obedience. It's bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. The point of being wed to our new spouse is that we might bear fruit or be productive in our faith. What I believe Romans 7, 14 through 25 is showing us is what it looks like when we treat our new relationship as if it is the old one. If we, as we treat our new husband as if he is our old husband. The old way of the written code subverts the bearing of fruit for God. How? Within the believer, there is the Holy Spirit, which is at odds with the sin nature. The struggle is between walking by the flesh and walking by faith. When we revert back to the written code, that is when we experience defeat. Let's look at verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now most of us hear that word and we can say, I can identify. We can sing the words of come thou fountain say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I get that, I understand that. Because there's a wrestling and a growing process, the process of sanctification. We're not born again as full-grown spiritual adults. We grow in grace. As the apostle Peter refers to it, he calls it growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. A point I will come back to later. Before coming to Christ, there is a war between our innate religiosity and the selfishness of our own sin nature. After coming to know Christ, there's a third voice that enters into that struggle, into that tug of war. And that's the voice of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the verses that we just read, you'll notice the stark difference between 7 through 13. The want to has changed. The desire has changed. In verses 7 through 13, the desire was covetousness. It wanted what it could not have. 
a self-centered desire that, was writ- uh, that the written code harnessed and created rebellion. In verses 14 through 25, there is a sincere desire to do that which pleases God. But the sin nature continues to subvert it. How? By using similar means as it did in verses 7 through 13. By luring us back into trying to keep the law. Paul exposes this in the lives of the Galatians in Galatians 3, 3, when he says this, Do you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? When they would say, well, of course, by hearing by faith. And then he says, are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And you see them all at work there, the flesh, the law, the Spirit, and the struggle there. You see what he's saying We are not perfected by religiosity or fleshly efforts or performance. We are being perfected, but there is not hope of being perfected by performance. The escalating war between our sin nature and the law brings us time and again to the point of despair, which is where verse 24 ends. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So is the point of Romans 7 to tell us that the Christian life, that sanctification is just getting used to the reality that we're justified? No, that's not it at all. Even though we will not be perfect on this side of heaven, it doesn't mean that we won't grow in grace. It doesn't mean that that sin will not be mortified, killed more and more by the presence of the Spirit in our lives. But we don't overcome by the way of the flesh. We overcome by the way of the Spirit. But here he points out the desperate struggle. And by the time that we end at 24, we can, pre- we can feel pretty hopeless. But Paul does not leave chapter 7 without giving us hope. And that hope is in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul refocuses our attention from striving to abiding. From the written code to the living word. From simply trying to work out the mathematics of obedience to relationship with Christ himself. That's why Paul wraps this passage in the context of marriage. Is marriage a legal contract? Absolutely. That's a reality of marriage, but it isn't what marriage is. If you believe that marriage is a legal contract, if if that is what it is to you fundamentally, you've got problems in your marriage. Think about it. Are you married to her? Why? Because the law says I am. Are you married to him? Yes. Why? Because the law says I am. That's not a marriage. And yet we treat our relationship with the Lord that way. Are you united to Christ? Well, I'm I'm bound to do what he told me to do. That's not a relationship. That's contractual. You did not get up this morning and say, whew, boy, I hope I don't commit adultery today. Ooh, I hope I'm not unfaithful to my wife today. I've really got to try hard not to do that. Again, if you have, if that's the reality for you, you need to seek counseling. And I mean that with all seriousness. I don't mean that as a joke. If that is the focus of your marriage, then you're missing the point. Because even unregenerate people understand that marriage isn't about what you don't do. It's about a relationship that you cultivate. 
When we turn back to our old symbolic marriage to the law, to the way of the written code, to performance, we are fixating on maintaining a legal contract. And because of indwelling sin, we either find ourselves reacting to that legal contract with either spiritual pride, like the Pharisees, woo, I fulfilled it, look what I'm doing, or spiritual rebellion like Adam and Eve. Remember, the first sin happened because the serpent convinced Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them. Instead of focusing on the fact that he said, every tree in the garden is yours. Eat, enjoy, be blessed. They said, yeah, but there's one that we can't touch. But look at all of this that I've given you. Yeah, but there's one that we cannot eat of. You're missing the point. Look at the abundance of my love for you. No, look at the thing that you won't let me have. And they were driven by Satan to eat of the tree. That's the way of the written code. It's about telling us what we can't do. And the way of the Spirit is about the riches that we have in Christ. It says, look what you already have. Look what is yours. Look who is yours. You are united to Christ for eternity. Your sins have been forgiven. When, when God the Father looks at you, he sees Christ the Son. And yet, either we don't want to do it, or we try to make ourselves more presentable than the blood of Christ can make us. And that is lamentable. Because we cannot be more presentable than the blood of Christ makes us. We miss the point. That's why Peter calls our spiritual growth, growth in the grace and knowledge, not of the law, grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's relational. That's why verse 25 is the hope. The hope is in a relationship with Jesus. It's not in, I'm going to do better. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do a little better. That's not the hope. The hope is in Jesus. The hope is in the indwelling spirit of the Lord. It's relationally centered. But when the relationship becomes a list of do's and don'ts to check, the power of the relationship is diminished. And that is the way of the written code, performance. But it can so easily creep into our devotional life and drain our relationship of its power. Since the context is, context is marriage, let me give you an example from marriage. Men, let's say that you notice there's some distance between you and your wife. And you go online and you read one of those articles on the five ways to make your marriage better. And so you set about like a, a Navy SEAL in a tactical operation. You're going to go down that list one through five. You get the chocolates. You get the roses. You clean the house. You're feeling pretty good about yourself now. You go on that date. You listen to her talk. Or she talks, and you sit there and you nod your head. You've worked the list, but nothing changes. Why? Because as good as those things are, if your wife believes that you're doing those things to manipulate her or out of obligation, you might as well not have done them at all. And guess what, guys? She's really good at determining whether you're doing it out of obligation or manipulation. And as good as she is at determining that, don't you know the Holy Spirit that searches minds and hearts knows why we're doing what we're doing. God will not be obligated. He's a debtor to no man. He will not be manipulated. He's the God of the universe. If our goal is to work the law for the purpose of manipulating God to bless me, we missed it. 
We've absolutely missed it. We've missed the relationship. We've missed the blessing. We've missed the treasure. We've missed the glory of knowing Jesus Christ and living and bearing fruit in a relationship with him. It's not contractual. It's relational. And God proves that to us through the two great commands. And they're not thou shalt nots. They're thou shalls. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first great commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's relational. The rich young ruler, if you remember, he tried to make it contractual. He went away sad. He said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, okay, you know the two commandments. I've done all those. Okay, well, go give your stuff away to the poor and then come follow me. And it proves he did not love his neighbor by giving his stuff away. And he didn't love the Lord because he wouldn't follow him. He exposes our hearts. When we're united to Christ, the Lord shows us a more excellent way. Does that sound familiar? At the end of 1 Corinthians 12, after he's spoken about spiritual gifts, Paul says, and there's an opportunity for pride, he says, and yet there is a more excellent way. And then launches into a chapter about love. His argument here is the way of the Spirit is the most excellent way. So is a commandment given a fear? Is a commandment given in order to manipulate? Is that the thing that ultimately changes us? No, it's not. Living in fear of a commandment and judgment does not bring real life change. It brings conviction that presses us back to Christ. But it does not bring life. The commandment never brings life. It brings conviction. But it is in Christ that we find hope and life and growth. It is through that relationship that we begin to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind and our strength. And God, by the Spirit, gives us the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's nothing that we can conjure up within us. The way of the written code was contributive to our spiritual death. It served its purpose to bring us to Christ. Or else it leads us to the second death if you don't want to embrace Christ. And if that's you this morning, if you are keenly aware that you are spiritually dead, I want to talk to you this morning afterwards. If you have not come to know Christ and you know you're spiritually dead, I'm telling you, there's no way forward. You must turn to the one that brings the dead back to life, the one in whom you die and are raised to life again with Christ. I'd love to pray with you afterwards. But for believers, the way of writ the written code subverts our life in the spirit. It's a contractual pursuit of God. It's a performance, and it distracts us from the relational pursuit of God by the Holy Spirit. Only when we pursue God relationally does the fearful commandment transform into loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's not about obligation. Reading your Bible is not about obligation. Praying is not about obligation. And you know you've gotten into the contractual pursuit when you just check it off your list. It is about communing with God. 
the God of the universe that saved you, loved you, sent his son for you to die, to give you his righteousness, to invite you into a relationship and fill you by his spirit that you may walk in fullness and you may produce life and not death. Bottom line, you cannot be perfectly faithful to the law, but you can live by faith in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? Well, that is next week. That's chapter 8. After leaving us with a little bit of a cliffhanger in verse 25 when he says, Thanks be to God. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. He then shows us what does it look like to walk by the Spirit. And for the eight of you that show up next week because you forgot to set your clock, you can join me as I'll be preaching the beginning half of Romans 8. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you say, you say in your word, search me and know me through the psalmist. This morning we're asking you to search us and know us. To examine our hearts. Lord, if we are here, if there are dead people here this morning that don't know they're dead, show them they're dead and show them life in Jesus Christ by faith. And if there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling because they feel defeat every single time because they're fixated on trying to perform, release them from that oppressive written code, the way of the written code, and help them to remember it is the way of your spirit. It is a relationship with you to leave the list behind and to walk in the newness of life, seeking you moment by moment. And letting you work in them and transform them so they're not one arm and one leg of theirs. They're complete in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.